Alright, welcome to our second episode of the podcast where we were covering The Twilight Zone. I came back to this because The Twilight Zone is an evergreen concept. It will always feel relevant to nerd culture in particular, and really normal people in general. This is one of those nerd things that normal people are also generally into. If human civilization continues to be a thing in a hundred years, there will probably be people pontificating about The Twilight Zone. I don't think it's ever really going to go out of style. And while there are podcasts that are exclusively devoted to the Twilight Zone, I try to be more general, keep things interesting, at least to myself. And I've decided to break it up by writer, which is something I'm also planning to do when I get the courage to cover The Simpsons. For this one, we're going to be talking about the um, three key episodes of the show written by Charles Beaumont, one of the program's more iconic writers. My name is Ryan. This is The Real Deep Dive. All right, and... As with the prior episode, my co-hosts for this one are Rachel Hello. and Sylvan. Hi. Yeah, you're here for uh, the Bunt episode where we're covering the Jerry Soul episodes. Beaumont's a bigger deal. For the background of it, uh, Charles Beaumont was born Charles Leroy Nutt in Chicago. He got a lot of shit growing up for that last name. I'm not surprised. Kids are mean. Yeah, he had it legally changed to Beaumont, which is one of his many pulp writing pseudonyms. Beaumont was the name of one of the female colleagues that he worked with beforehand. Beaumont worked as a cartoonist, illustrator, radio DJ, usher, and dishwasher before Amazing Stories accepted his submission in 1950. His career really took off when he was the first writer to have a short story published in Playboy in 1954. This is when he started getting TV and movie writing gigs soon after. His movie credits include Queen of Outer Space in 1958. Beaumont had intended this to be a spoof of sci-fi tropes, but the director played it straight, much to Beaumont's puzzlement. He also worked frequently with Roger Corman, which is one of those names that often gets brought up, particularly on episodes that Cheryl picks. Hey, I picked Little Shop of Horrors, the musical, mind you. Beaumont wrote a couple of Corman's Edgar Allan Poe adaptations, most notably Premature Burial in 1962 and The Mask of Red Death in 1964. Corman also directed The Intruder in 1962, which was based on a Beaumont novel. However, Beaumont is remembered primarily for his 22 credits on Twilight Zone episodes, most of which were adapted from his various short stories. As I mentioned before, three of them were ghostwritten by Jerry Soul. We covered those in our first episode because... What were they again? Talky Tina. Of course. Queen of the Nile. Yes. And the... The new exhibit. Yeah, the new exhibit. New exhibit. This ghostwriting happened because in 1963, at the age of 34, Beaumont began suffering from a mysterious brain disease. Some speculated that it was related to a childhood bout with spinal meningitis or Beaumont's heavy drinking habit, but a battery of tests concluded that it was either Pick's disease or early-onset Alzheimer's. Beaumont aged rapidly and could barely function before too long. Sol, along with several of Beaumont's other colleagues, finished his writing commitments to the Twilight Zone and other projects. Beaumont insisted on splitting his fees, which his friends only accepted because it hurt his pride to not do this. He died in 1967, and he was only 38. Yeah. I was reading about him on the Twilight Zone Wikipedia page, and his son says that he said when his father died, he was 95 in all but actuality. Yeah, I read a couple of accounts of his decline, and I I went into it a little more on the Jerry Soul episode, but yeah, yeah, it was Pick's disease or Alzheimer's is not a great way to go. I've witnessed both firsthand because of the jobs I've had over the years, and ugh. Yeah, I, I, I second that. 
uh, since we already did the soul episodes, we're doing uh, three episodes that Beaumont himself wrote. Well, the, th- the third one only sort of, but we'll get to that. The first one is The Howling Man, which is often argued as classic Twilight Zone, one of the best episodes. Yeah, we were talking about this before because you agree with me on this. It's not a personal favorite of mine. Yeah, me neither. And as Sylvan and I both admitted, we're both pretty basic bitches when it comes to Twilight Zone. My favorite episodes are like everyone's favorite episodes. Wish you to the cornfield. There's a gremlin on the side of the wing. Time Enough at Last is my favorite episode. And um, from my forays into Twilight Zone fandom on the internet, that's true of like 90% of us. Mine is And When the Sky Was Opened, which is a Richard Matheson episode, so at least we know what my pick's going to be when we do him. How did you decide which episode we picked? Well, I went with Howling Man because that seems to be a consensus choice, and then I picked, yeah, my pick. It was going to be your pick, but then you you settled on the jungle because I already got yours. Yeah, (laughs) number 12 looks just like you. That is one of my personal favorites. Same. Oh yeah, plot recap for The Howling Man. The story is told in a flashback by an American gentleman by David Ellington, although every other person in this episode has an American accent as well. While on a walking trip through post-World War I Central Europe sometime around 1925 or so, Ellington becomes lost in a storm. He spots an ancient castle near the village of Swarzhoff, now the home of a monastic order. They all look like Moses from (laughs) the Ten Commandments. They all have like stage prop beards and walking sticks with a little crook on the end. Yep, and the hair. Yeah, big hair. He knocks at the door and pleads for help and is told that they do not allow visitors. Ellington explains that he is lost and begs for sanctuary from the storm. After consulting with Brother Jerome, who leads the Hermitage, Ellington waits in the hallway. He's rejected again, but collapses uh, after hearing a wolf-like howl coming from somewhere in the castle. (laughs) That's more like a husky impression right there for me. (laughs) The monk lies and tells him that it's the wind because they don't encounter the outside world all that often. They're not super convincing. You're going to lie. you got to make it a good one. Ellington collapses, which basically forces the monks to uh, accept him, at least temporarily. I'm surprised they didn't just yeet him out the front door. Like, all right, well, he's unconscious now. Yeah, they're guarding Satan, spoilers. They <laughs> make some sacrifices for the greater good. They're not good at it, though. <laughs> I mean, they kept him for five years, probably only because not a lot of people went to that monastery. Anyway. <laughs> when Ellington awakens, he is... Inside the castle, and again, he hears the howling. He investigates and finds a bedraggled man sitting in a cell. This man claims to be unjustly imprisoned by the insane monks, locked up because he kissed his sweetheart in public. It's a much more convincing lie. They do come across as very insane. Yeah. He was beaten by Brother Jerome, who lusted after this woman and was jealous. And I thought, like, well, I mean, the whole idea that sex is bad, I'm like, guessing this must be a Catholic monastery. Oh, Catholics aren't the only ones who do that. This is the sort of monastery where they are passive-aggressively praying away other people's sins. They're clearly not Franciscan. (laughs) They do not want to be the change that they wish to see in the world. Ellington is seen talking to the prisoner and is taken back to Brother Jerome. When an explanation is not forthcoming about why the man is in the cell, Ellington says that he will leave, but also threatens to go to the police because he is a reasonable human being. 
Brother Jerome, realizing that Ellington's threat might set the prisoner free, reveals the truth. The prisoner is not a man, but rather the devil himself, and can only be contained in that room by the staff of truth, which Brother Jerome has barricaded the door with. I said that the devil's story sounds much more convincing. You see, Satan had come to the village shortly after World War I to corrupt it. It was one of the few uncorrupted spots in the entire world, and Satan couldn't resist. But Jerome had recognized him for what he was and locked him away. And these actions have given the world five years of relative peace with only the evils created by mankind itself and not the outsized, artificially created evils such as World War One, which people aren't responsible for themselves. I mean, I, I still remember what my European history professor taught us for all the causes of World War One, but I won't list them. <laughs> we'll be here all, all night. <laughs> Ellington pretends to believe this crazy-ass story, but Brother Jerome is not fooled and assigns another brother to watch him. Christophorus! He does not do a good job. No, he's very bad. <laughs> he falls asleep like a drunk person. Ellington waits until the guard falls asleep like a drunk person and then creeps down to the cell. Seeing that the door is held shut only by a wooden staff that is within the reach of the imprisoned man, Ellington briefly wonders why this man has not simply yeah, removed it that himself. That I would have given myself some pause, for sure. At the howling man's urging, Ellington removes the staff. The prisoner exits the cell and then pins Ellington to the floor with a wave of his hand. As he walks towards the exit, he begins to change, and after he passes a pillar, just taking on more and more of the appearance of the devil which eats step, but a party city devil. Yeah, it's such like an old school Halloween decoration, or maybe like the devil on like a cinnamon candy package, like Red Hots. He's got the pointy beard. I think the first part where he like runs a hand down his face and like the shadows change, that's creepy. The rest of it, it's like, oh, yeah, party city devil, he's here. By the time the horns are there, it's, yeah, it's the whole Halloween store <laughs> and devil. And it's like, poof. <laughs> he disappears in a poof of smoke. I don't hate it, honestly. I love that <laughs> level of camp. Oh, I mean, that's why we, that's why we all come back to the Twilight Zone. <laughs> Brother Jerome arrives, realizes what has happened, and sadly explains that the inability to recognize the devil has always been man's greatest weakness, and rather passive-aggressively says, I feel sorry for you. You will remember this for the rest of your life. The flashback ends. Ellington has been telling the story to his maid. He says that ever since, he has been hunting the devil to atone for his mistake through World War II, the Korean War, and the development of nuclear weapons, which he all blames on Satan. The devil's very focused on American politics. However, Ellington has finally succeeded. He has locked the devil in a closet, barred by a tiny. very, very <laughs> tiny staff, similar to the staff it's of truth. pocket-sized, fun side. Ellington intends to return him to the castle, and Brother Jerome is waiting. He warns the skeptical housekeeper not to remove the staff under any circumstances while he goes to make final preparations. She does not for a second look like she believes him, and she never promises not to do the thing, and in fact, immediately does the thing. Yeah, so why didn't he just take one of the monks with him as, like, a sidekick? I mean, if the devil's not there, they don't really have anything else to do. These people are not good at their jobs. No. As soon as Ellington leaves, the maid hears a howl from behind the Ooh. door, and in her curiosity, removes the tiny staff. The door slowly opens, and that is the last shot. I think that's supposed to be a metaphor for how we cannot contain the devil. I'm being generous. We can't stop evil. We can only fight it. All right, let's get into the cast of this. First, we have H.M. Winant as David Ellington. I think that he commits to the bit, particularly when he hams it up in his old man makeup. 
He's not a convincing old man. I mean, he's supposed to be the episode straight man, and uh, I mean, there is some dichotomy between crazy old man Ellington and uh, skeptical young man Ellington, who is a man of faith and, well, reason. But yeah, he doesn't get the best bits. Next, we have John Carradine as Brother Jerome. I didn't recognize him under the beard and the poof hair. Carradine is one of the most infamous character actors in the world. He has hundreds of credits on the IMDb's. He actually pops up in an episode of the 1980s Twilight Zone. Good for him. Once again, he has that little Moses beard and that crook, and he gets to yell and intone more authoritatively. He gets a, a bit more to do. He does have that voice. He does have that voice. But uh, probably the best bits are given to Robin Hughes as the Howling Man. Of course, he gets to be sneaky. He's probably the only one there who gets to do, like, general naturalistic acting until he gets to prance about as Satan. He gets the best of both worlds. For the making of this, uh, Beaumont had envisioned a cross imprisoning the devil. However, the producers replaced it with the Staff of Truth, since they didn't want to offend evangelicals. Beaumont was not pleased with this. I keep wanting to say the Stick of Truth, but isn't that from South Park? Uh, I think so. Yeah, it's the name of one of the, like, the video game things. The ending of The Howling Man was slightly different from the source story that Beaumont wrote. You see, in the short story, The Howling Man doesn't transform into Satan in front of Ellington. Instead, years later, Ellington notices that a Nazi commander invading Poland in newspaper photos looks exactly like The Howling Man, and that's when he figures it out. Better. Me too. Although I understand why they changed it for television because it's just more dramatic the way they did it. And, you know, not subtle. The music for this was mostly just stock canned music that had been recorded beforehand by Bernard Herrmann and then recycled for this. This is not uncommon for Twilight Zone music. All right, themes. Most of it is just really hammering you in the face with it, obviously, because, you know, Twilight Zone. First thing I wrote down was the devil made me do it which I think is one of the main reasons why I'm not so crazy about The Howling Man. I don't consider this to be one of the best ones. It often feels like a cop-out, at least by my perspective, to attribute humanity's moral abominations to outside demonic influence. I gotta say, too, it doesn't really fit in with, like, you know, the theological role of the devil. Like, he's a tempter, but he's not quite the mover and shaker this episode makes him out to be. The first thing that my mind went to while watching this episode again is the devil as he appears in Neil Gaiman's Sandman, where he's just like, they keep saying that I tell them to do things. I don't make them do anything. Yeah, humans suck plenty all on our own. And also, evil isn't flashy or special. It is often banal. It honestly feels to me like a misplaced Sunday school special. <laughs> In the Twilight Zone. Yeah, we don't we don't need Satan whispering in our ear to make us do shitty stuff. All we need to do is just sort of go along with things as they develop. Uh, we had a very recent reminder of this. At least one-third of Americans find toddlers in concentration camps perfectly acceptable as long as gas prices are low. Hmm. On that cheery note... <laughs> One reason that people are really into The Howling Man is they frequently argue that it has incredibly innovative cinematography for 1960s television. I will agree with that. 
Yeah, it's a nice looking episode. I mean, most of the Twilight Zone episodes, while uh, a lot less stayed than network sitcoms from the same period, are pretty typical point and shoot. Whatever gets the job done, let's not call too much attention to ourselves. Very few Twilight Zone directors could qualify as auteurs. But this one has more fancy pants stuff going on. Ellington's sickly delirium is often conveyed through, yeah, through the use of moving Dutch angles. It, it's effective. This is also one of the only episodes where, like, the main character narrates it instead of it just being Rod Sarling. And the bit where they flash back to the Hermitage, there isn't a dissolve, which would have been the obvious cue. They just sort of, like, do a tracking shot behind Ellington's head and then sort of fades to the storm. It's it's a cool shot. And, one of the, and none of this is actually super-duper flashy or anything. Nobody's going to think that this is, like, overly handsy directing. But, you know, it has a lot of touches that most TV from this period doesn't have. All right, and with that, we're moving on to the second episode, which is Rachel's pick, The Jungle. So I picked this one because we uh, already agreed that number 12 looks just like you. It's going to be on here. I picked this one because I actually watched it for the first time fairly recently, like a couple of years ago. And I've been watching, you know, The Twilight Zone since I was a kid. And I know that there are gaps in my, my knowledge. And I picked it because it, while I think that some of the themes are a bit dated other ones i felt had a kind of a new resonance when watching it so i also thought it was kind of hey i'm down for any episode they're gonna do where the colonizer gets eaten by exactly it's about colonialism i imagine a couple of people are gonna listen to this and be like why didn't you do elegy or one of the other beaumont ones but yeah i'm down with the jungle anyways plot recap our main character is a gentleman named Alan Richards, and the episode opens with him and his wife Doris having recently returned from Africa, where Alan's company is constructing a hydroelectric dam, disregarding the wishes of the people who actually live there. He discovers that she has secretly kept several items given to her by a local shaman for protection. Uh, when he confronts her about them, she says that she is frightened by the natives opposed to the dam and begs him to stop construction. He dismisses her pleas and throws the trinkets into the fire and opens the door to leave for work. In the hallway of the apartment building, just outside the door, he discovers the carcass of a dead goat. A big goat. Yeah, Alan next attends a board meeting where they discuss the dam and the fact that although the locals will benefit from it in the long run, they are upset that they will be displaced in order to build it. He warns that the local witch doctors have threatened to use black magic against anyone associated with the project. When the other board members scoff, Alan points out their own superstitions. One of them carries a rabbit's foot, another practices astrology, and he harps upon how the building does not have a 13th floor. Later, he is in a bar having a drink with a friend before heading home and shows him a lion's tooth amulet that Doris had given him. Supposedly, the tooth will protect him against a lion attack. Alan in New be- York City. <laughs> and this comes back. Yeah, Alan abandons the lion's tooth amulet and begins to head home, but finds that his car won't start. And New York City is awfully deserted. Yes, this is an incredibly empty metropolis with 7 million people living in it. I think that's honestly one of the creepier parts of this episode. Is, um, any Twilight episode that uses just being alone as part of the horror. And I know in this case, it's probably partially convenience more than ambience, but it does filter in there. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is fairly brave for like most of the second half of the episode. It's just a guy wandering around flustered without too much dialogue. It's so 
still works though. Oh yeah, no, it was probably taking the problem of we're setting this in New York City. Shit, that's expensive and full of people. Hey, what if we make that part of the creepiness? <laughs> Alan attempts to return to the bar, but he is locked out. He tries to use a payphone, but it's out of order. However, while he walks away, the phone rings. He answers it, but hears nothing but animal noises. Stop animal noises. <laughs> he starts walking home, but he's hearing the sounds of jungle animals all around him. And he starts getting more nervous and jumpy. He tries to take a taxi home, but the driver dies while stopped at a traffic light. Alan then meets a bum and asks him about the jungle noises, which the bum claims not to hear. He offers the homeless dude money to escort him through the park, but the bum suddenly disappears while Alan's back is turned. Yeah, he offers him $10, which is around, I'd say, 60 to $70 in today's money. Alan continues on and finally reaches the safety of his apartment. At this point, he's quite frantic. This is when the noises suddenly stop. He's very sweaty. Relieved, Alan enters and pours himself a drink, but he hears a lion's roar from the bedroom. He decides to open the bedroom door and finds a lion. A big on lion. The bed, as well as his wife's corpse. The episode ends as the lion leaps towards Alan to kill him. Should have kept the damn amulet. All right, let's How about go. not colonized an area and disregarding the wishes of the indigenous population? Yeah, but I mean, if you're going to do that, at least keep the fucking amulet. Our cast for this, we have John Dammer as Alan Richards. Now, right off the bat, Sylvan was like, that's Mr. Garrity. Yeah, Garrity in the Graves is one of my favorite episodes. And Ryan was like, no, I looked it up. This is his only Twilight Zone. So I went on IMDb and he has three Twilight Zone credits. Including Garrity. What's the other Fucking one? Twilight Zone wiki relied to me. I forget the name of the episode, but he plays a general role in that one. Damer is a character actor who was mostly known for playing shady rich dudes and droll villains, particularly in westerns. He has that face shape in the staff. He has uh, 285 IMDb credits as an actor. Yeah, I'm not feeling too bad that I didn't notice the other Twilight Zone ones, but yeah, he's very clearly Garrity. I should have been more on the ball there. I think his performance in Garrity is more charming because he gets to do that droll smiling, I may be just a country lawyer shtick that he's apparently very known for. <laughs> oh, he, he did good playing, like, frantic and scared in this one, though. Yeah, he did. And, you know, he plays a convincing smarmy asshole getting what he deserves, which is a Twilight Zone classic. Mm, very necessary. You know, there uh, isn't much else for anyone else to do, uh... Emily McLaughlin plays his wife, Doris. She only gets a couple of lines. She's best known for a long tenure on General Hospital. One of the other ad guys, or maybe the dude in the bar, is Walter Brooke, who is best known as the guy who delivers the plastics monologue from The Graduate. And then there's the lion. And then there's the yeah. lion. His name is Zamba, and he's not credited. He does have a few screen credits, including like what Adam's family and what else? He was also a lion on Gilligan's Island. Ah, oh, right, yeah. Well, I actually own all of Gilligan's Island on DVD, so I have to go through and find him again. The lion played a lion in that one, too? Yeah! <laughs> yeah, Rachel's really into Gilligan's Island and keeps threatening to pick Gilligan's yeah. Island episodes for this right. podcast. Hey, you know what? I watched a lot of TV land as a child, okay? <laughs> well, yeah, during a period in the 1960s, if you wanted a lion, you got this guy. <laughs> 
Most of the music from this was recycled from Fred Steiner's score for King Nine Will Not Return from the previous season of The Twilight Zone. However, lots of African field recordings that have to be on file were used, particularly the drum bits. Themes for this one. First one I wanted to bring up was Superstition. Even though this was based on a short story that Beaumont had written for If Magazine in 1954, Rod Serling was aggressively skeptical of occultism, astrology, tarot reading, and so on and so forth. And a lot of people have interpreted the depiction of Alan in this as a mild dig against uh, Serling. <laughs> you can bite the hand that feeds you, but just a nibble. <laughs> I don't think Serling minded, because while Serling was very much not a believer in the supernatural, he was clearly not above using it as a plot device on his television programs, The Twilight Zone, and especially The Night Gallery. My beloved Night Gallery. <laughs> More deeply, we have colonialism. I think this is a shockingly advanced take for 1961 American TV. It is largely portraying manifest destiny and the white man's burden as exploitative and bad. Also, too, like, considering, you know, the fact that they keep Africa very vaguely defined and stuff, like, it's surprisingly not racist. Yeah, uh, I looked up a bunch of the African-type words that they use throughout the episode, and most of them are genuine Swahili. I figured that they were just going to, like, take something that they read in, like, a Tarzan novel or a minstrel show and use it, but no, Serling was at least that ahead of the times. Yeah, I just figured that the theme was very resonant to this day and age, so that's why one of the reasons why I picked it. And it had sort of that, you know, EC comics, ooh, the lion ate him at the end ending that, you know, we're all suckers for. Yeah, this one holds up very well. There are bits and pieces here that feel a little condescending, the whole African magic powers bit. Um, they don't say a country in Africa that yeah. they've been to, it's just Africa. When they're going over the schematics for the dam, <laughs> it, they, they show like a map of Africa that looks like it was like in a child's Denny's menu. <laughs> <laughs> well, they knew the crayon. Like I said, it holds up very well, and it's good for the day in which it was made. Our, the bar is very, very low. Yeah, it's less racist than gun smoke. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and the third and final episode that we wanted to talk about here, number 12 looks just like you, which is one of my personal favorites. Yep. It was very important for me as a Twilight Zone-loving child, I guess. Uh, I, as like a little girl, there were lots of times where I felt very ugly, and I liked how, you know, Marilyn was very like, I care about what's important, even though the ending, you know, spoiler alert, is sad, you know, it still was a very good episode for me to see as a little kid. Oh yeah, I mean, like, leaning into stuff like, it's okay not to feel okay, before that was even a slogan, it's such a good if you know, downer episode. You know what? It was real mind-blowing when I was seven, so... <laughs> oh, yeah, plot recap. This takes place in a future society. Serling flippantly says, the year 2000, why not? And we're laughing here in 2021. <laughs> uh, in this society, all 19-year-olds go through a process known as the transformation, in which each person's body is changed to a physically attractive design chosen from a selection of numbered models. Uh, the process also slows physical deterioration due to age and confers immunity to many diseases, extending human lifespans, as well as making unspecified psychological corrections. Can we say lobotomy? <laughs> they can't. 
Due to the overwhelming popularity of female model 12 and male model 17, all adults wear name badges to avoid confusion. Although it's just first names, so apparently first names are very diverse in this day and age. Maybe it's friendlier just to have the first name. The program centers on 18-year-old Marilyn Cubero, who, who decides not to undergo the transformation. Nobody else can quite understand Marilyn's decision, and those around her, such as her mother Lana and her friend Val, are confused by her displeasure with the conformity and shallowness of contemporary life. Her radical beliefs are, were fostered by her now-deceased father, who gave Marilyn banned books by gentlemen like William Shakespeare and Aristotle and Dostoevsky, and this man came to regret his own transformation years later, committing suicide upon the loss of his personal identity, although everyone else around uses the flippant euphemism of the Ganymede incident whenever they talk about his death. I think that there was some kind of an accident, and they were like, well, just pretend he died there instead. When Dr. Rex, who is in charge of Marilyn's transformation, is told about her decision, he has Marilyn confined to a hospital room against her will, ostensibly to psychologically examine her and cure her of her reason for refusing the procedure. One of the uh, not exactly subtle, rather heavy-handed, but still nice touches of the episode is that Marilyn's being gaslit about it. Like, no, 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 no. You you don't have to have the transformation, but you totally have to have the transformation. We're here to find out why you don't want the transformation and then to correct it. Yeah, Marilyn suspects that despite not being legally required, the transformation is not optional and is being maintained by the leaders of society to ensure that everyone just sort of fits in. Her best friend Valerie, who has already undergone the transformation, shows no emotional reaction to Marilyn's protests, even when she is driven to tears by recollections of how dull and tiresome her dead father was. It's like, everyone's married all the time. I've had 11 stepfathers. Marilyn realizes that no one who has undergone the transformation remains capable of any empathy for or understanding of her. She tries to escape from the hospital, but ends up in the operating room to undergo the transformation. Dr. Rex, who had operated on Marilyn, comments that some people have problems with the idea of the transformation, but that the improvements to the procedure now guarantee a positive result. Marilyn appears, looking and thinking exactly like Val. And the nicest part of all, Val, she gushes, I look just like you. Stares right into the camera. <laughs> a camera that is also the mirror. Because Twilight Zone doesn't have time to be subtle about it. It's being didactic. Fuck you. Take it. All right, uh, cast for this. First, we have Colin Wilcox Paxton as Marilyn. She was a child actress uh, appearing as one of the kids in To Kill a Mockingbird, and she was in a bunch of episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents before she showed up in The Twilight Zone. Her most noteworthy credit besides The Twilight Zone is that she's in Jaws 2, and that's the photo from our IMDb page. I looked her up on IMDb. <laughs> Uh, my opinion on her performance is that she lays it on a bit thick in parts, but she's mostly effective. She's supposed to be a, a you know emotional teenage girl, so I felt that that was pretty believable. Yeah, I thought that she sold the uh, hormonal overreactions to certain stimuli well, I don't and freaking out. Reaction. She <laughs> and freaking out to her father's suicide. I could believe mm -hmm. that. I wasn't super different from that at that age. 
All right, uh, Valerie was played by Pamela Austin, who uh, has a bunch of TV credits and stuff that I haven't really seen. And she was in an Elvis movie, presumably as an Elvis love interest. I haven't seen that many Elvis movies because I don't hate there myself. Are, there are Elvis movies? Oh my God, yeah, they're supposed to be awful. I haven't seen any of <laughs> Okay, I didn't even know this existed. Oh, there are like 50 of them and they're all terrible. I'll pass then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I should probably do an Elvis movie at some point, but I don't know who I'm going to subject to that. Well, Sarah like, might be fine. You're going to wake up duct taped to the sofa and it's like, <laughs> it's Elvis time. <laughs> I wouldn't do that to you. And uh, yeah, she's basically playing like a step for teenager and it works. Yep. She's got that plastic smile down cold. I love her hair. Oh, same. And her, her like, sort of flowery cadence about everything being so wonderful, and I'm happy. And she's wearing a very clingy, form-fitting suit, just like everyone else, except for Paxton, who is wearing a more flowy dress. Yeah, I think that's... like a nightgown. Yeah, I always thought she was wearing a nightgown, even as a kid. All right, then we have Susie Parker as Lana, the mom. Well, she... and all the other type 12s, too. Yeah, she is also the other type 12s. She was cast because she was the most prominent and off-photographs uh, model in America at the time. They figured that in order to uh, sell the idea that everyone's being transformed into plastic models of conformist beauty, they might as well get someone who is being held up as the ideal of sex appeal at the time. Makes sense. So what's up with the dude? Oh, we'll get to the dude. I should also point out that Parker is three years older than Wilcox. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that I always thought that was one of like the creepier parts of it. The idea that, you know, you and your own mother like look like you're the same age or something, you know. Yeah, everybody's young forever and aging slowed down. So. so you would basically be the same as like the same appearance as your your mom. And I guess undercurrent of creepiness is that she's like call me Lana like you know I don't know about you but like I was raised that you know you address people in certain ways and even now freaking 29 years old I'll still do it I'll be like like I was like how to, I'm trying to address a, a birthday card to my boyfriend's mother and I'm like so uh how should I should I address it should I address it to Mrs. G or, or to Judy like I don't know I don't want to call her Judy and that might be inappropriate I do think there's a yeah. lot of classism <laughs> in the very strictly regimented caste system yes. of this society. When if you choose out the maid, you're like, I don't know how you people can't be taught to refer to me by my first name. And then the maid very plastically uses Lana at the end of the sentence and feels like a robot while she's doing it. Uh, it's it, a nice little touch. Are we going to talk about how there's, I mean, granted, it's made in the 60s, but we can talk about now how there's no black or brown people in the yeah, that has a <laughs> subtext to it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I assume that that actually is very intentional for the dystopia. We were talking about the, the, the way to cure prejudice was to make everybody look the same. And there's a strict gender binary. There's literally one guy who's handsome and probably a bunch of other... And I'm going to say handsome with air quotes. <laughs> oh man! Hey, not, I not into was, not into what Richard Long is going. I actually on. thought he was pretty well cast. He has that sort of smarmy handsomeness to him. He to me radiates um, mediocre white man energy, which I think adds another level to the dystopian. You know, the the girls go through very drastic changes that also give them ideal slender but curvy body types. The He's slim thick. He does yeah. have a fudge, but he has, like, really perfect TV anchor hair. He has Tucker Carlson <laughs> hair. 
He also has yeah, like yeah, a, that's all that. he has like the face shape for it. He's a character actor. I swear I've seen him in like a bajillion other things. He was probably in a Star Trek episode. Uh, yes, he's been in a bunch of things. Uh, Long was a regular fixture in a number of Western sitcom and detective procedurals. However, he died at the age of 47 oh. after a sudden bout with uh, pneumonia. Oh, that sucks. Probably would have steadily worked for the rest of his life otherwise. I think he's a lot of fun in this. He clearly enjoys himself when he oh, plays yeah. Sigmund Friend, the psychiatrist. I know. Yeah, no, I, I think he was great for the role. I just think it's a critique on the world that that is the ideal of masculinity. But I feel like if they were doing it now, the ideal masculinity would change. I mean, if he made this in, like, the 90s, they'd all be turning into, like, stick-thin Kate Mosses. This episode was based on a Beaumont short story entitled The Beautiful People. Now, the teleplay was written by John Tomlin, who uh, is credited as a co-writer on this, even though... At this point, Beaumont was not functioning because of Pick's disease and or Alzheimer's. So, yeah, Tomlin decided he was going to pinch hit and let Beaumont take the credit because I'm sure he needed the money at that point. One thing I stumbled upon is that this episode was specifically sponsored by Paul Mall cigarettes, which I think is funny. <laughs> Why? Nobody smokes in this episode. Yeah, I was looking not for even, product placement and there isn't any. Yeah, not even like a, I mean, they're having get a glass of instant smile. There isn't any sort of like, I don't know, like fake space cigarette or anything. Yeah, I figured they could like smoke their Soma or something, but I guess Paul Mall wouldn't want to be associated with that. <laughs> but, uh, this one has a pretty wide legacy, wider than any of the ones that we mentioned beforehand. Uh, one thing that very much comes to notice if you're a millennial is that Mike Myers modeled Dr. Evil's pinky gestures <laughs> from Richard Long as Rex in this episode. One million dollars! <laughs> Yeah, there are a couple of other references. Uh, there's a hardcore punk band called Number 12 Looks Just Like You. They started going in uh, 2002 and are still active, albeit with a hiatus. They operate in the mathcore subgenre, which I'm not the hugest fan of. There was also a 2005 novel which uh, spun off into a YA series called Uglies, written by Scott Westerfeld, whose basic premise is a springboard from this. Yeah, I never read them, but my sister really liked them. I read part of the first book, but um, I forget what the main character's name. She wants to become, you know, she's an ugly, and then she's going to get the surgery and become a pretty, but as she, you know, slowly discovers that the prettyification surgery is designed to essentially keep you a dumb, docile sheep. And then later on, she gets transformed into a special, essentially a cyborg weapon who's designed to keep, you know, the uglies down and the pretties stupid. I, I mean, I bet there are a lot of other people, you know, around our ages who grew up reading them and have fond memories of the series. Scott Westerfield is still writing YA now. Yeah, that does feel a bit on the nose to me, but I mean, I've brought this up before. I'm usually not too hard on something that's pretty didactic because no matter how squarely and obviously you frame your message, people are going to bring their own background and outlook into their interpretation of it. I uh, read a piece, and I think it was either the National Review or it was, it was another right-wing publication, where they talked about how Squid Game is this tribute to the value of individual liberty and the entrepreneurial spirit. I don't get it. Wow. Yeah. 
Okay. So yeah, by all means, avoid all subtlety. Number 12 <laughs> looks just like you. It sounds, you know what it reminded me of? A little bit of the, the sci-fi show Orphan Black, which is about a bunch of women and later um, some men who all realize that they are clones. And so it kind of plays into the whole like one actress playing all of these clones and all of the clones are like different from each other, you know, because of the whole nature versus nurture, you know, there's the the science lesbian clone, there's the British punk clone, the assassin clone. And I don't know, I'm just going to think of the whole idea of people who look a lot alike here, but except this time they're all meant to be different. Speaking of contemporary things that are trying to pick up the torch of the Twilight Zone, a 2011 episode of Black Mirror entitled 15 Million Merits, according to show creator Charlie Booker, was loosely derived from Number 12 Looks Like You. I'm sure that is hardly the only Black Mirror episode that took a bit of inspiration from the Twilight Zone. Oh, yeah, I would say it's... Hmm kind of close to it but it really doesn't involve sort of like your appearance per se but mostly the idea of how to sell your labor to the man yeah i can see where that's coming from but anyways themes for this episode first thing i wrote down was hollywood's obsession with youth this is laid out pretty clearly as it usually is in the twilight zone most of the characters in this are named after then current cinematic sex symbols lana marilyn rex pretty clear there and there's definitely a strong undercurrent of putting someone out to pasture if they look older than 30 and you know getting back to why they cast Susie Parker as Lana to begin with because she was considered the ideal at least at that particular hot minute in America and at least in terms of people that they could get for the Twilight Zone I'm sure if they could have gotten Marilyn Monroe they would have well she was last deceased at that point and the next thing I wanted to put up was conformity, because, duh. <laughs> the procedure is... But they were so subtle about that theme, Ryan. <laughs> the procedure is very strongly implied to be far more than an aesthetic change. There are a lot of obvious parallels between Number 12 Looks Just Like You and Brave New World, the 1932 novel by Aldue Huxley, which takes place in a dystopian society where citizens are genetically engineered and psychologically brainwashed to be vapid, agreeable cogs in the social hierarchy. Although I'm not going to throw too many rip-off points at it because plenty of people have credibly accused Brave New World of plagiarism on its own. But, uh, yeah, Instant Smile versus Soma, the parts where they're talking about the banned books with Sig, it reminds me of when the Savage is talking to one of the leaders of the society. But this one is even more glib because the society leader is like, yeah, sure, I could teach the Alphas or the Beta Shakespeare, but we've conditioned them to not understand it. <laughs> so, moot point, we mostly just keep the books banned because of inertia at this point. Which I wasn't super on board with, even when I read Brave New World as an impressionable 17-year-old, because as much as you can psychologically condition people, the universal themes that are in Shakespeare, the, the longing and the needs and the greed and the heartaches, and those the are, dick jokes. And the dick jokes. Yeah, but, Shakespeare isn't actually as highbrow as people make it out to be. <laughs> yeah, and it's still applicable to what humans are like now. Maybe in seven million years when we're either extinct or evolved into dolphin people or whatever, <laughs> we won't be able to directly relate to it. But 500 years is an eye blink in the terms of uh, human evolution. And I don't think as much as you can nurture something, there is an element of nature to it as well. 
So, yeah, I think the society in number 12 looks like you will eventually collapse under its own weight. Yeah, I think that since Marilyn's father, Jack, was able to, I guess, realize what he had lost, I don't know, maybe there's a chance in the future for Marilyn to rebel. And they aren't able to stamp out empathy completely. Like, Lana is still concerned about her daughter's welfare. Mm-hmm. Everybody does this to her, to Marilyn, I mean, out of a sense of goodness. They're trying to help her. Like, I think that's one of the freakier parts of this episode is that nobody thinks that they're doing a bad or harmful thing. They're thinking that this is the best thing that they can do for Marilyn, for her to live a long and happy life. It's more than just be beautiful. Yeah, most of the worst monsters in human history were utterly convinced that they're doing the right thing. It's something that keeps me awake at night, especially when I'm examining my internalized biases. Can we argue that this episode is kind of a weird, maybe not weird, a kind of a counterpoint to Eye of the Beholder? Yeah, I can see them working against each other. Maybe we should have paired them off against each other. Well, but yeah, well, they have different writers, so I yeah, couldn't do that. Yeah, who, who writes that one? Is it Serling? I'm not 100%. Yeah, it's it probably later. Serling. We'll look it up later. Yeah, but it's sort of the whole idea of conformity versus what's considered beautiful. And I think that the ending to Eye of the Beholder is a little bit straightforwardly happy at the end. Like, sure, um, she's still considered to be an ugly outcast, but there's a guy who's equally as ugly as her taking her to go live in a commune. Maybe, Maybe it'll be okay. Maybe the society will fall apart and the pig people and the normal looking people or the normal looking people and then ugly, not pig people will get along. Yeah, Things getting, change. Getting back to Brave New World, there's a commune where people don't work out, and they're just sent there, like the savages. So, while we're discussing themes on this one, watching it as somebody who is going through medical transition and altering my body to match an ideal that I may or may not ever get to, this episode hits differently now from when I was a kid. Yeah, I probably should have occurred to me to ask you about that. <laughs> I, I, I thought about it, but I wanted to have you bring it up first since I felt like you would be invasive just to straight up ask you. I mean, they out and out call it the transformation. So I don't know, it's an interesting episode to me because uh-huh. it presents something that is kind of like a fantasy, you know, mm-hmm. being able to just like walk in and get it all over with right away. But then also it pushes that as a, a negative too, like because of doing it for the sake of conformity. But, you know, in the experience of myself and other transgender people, we're, we're not actually going through things to conform. We're doing it to uh, experience the own, the, the, inner truths that like Marilyn was talking about and try to make that like manifested and how other people can see us as well. So I don't know. I I know there's some ideas forming here, but they're not fully realized yet. But yeah, no, that episode, I'm sure somebody could write a good essay on that and like trans thoughts. I'm sure somebody has. Tell us about it in the comments. Yeah. (laughs) And honestly, that kind of reminds me of how in like the original script for the Matrix, which is a woman when they're in the Matrix versus presenting as a man in quote unquote the real world. But that didn't go into like the final uh, version of the movie. 
Yeah, the Wachowskis knew what they were doing from the jump, which is weird that the incels have latched onto it the way they did. But that's another episode. Yeah. <laughs> there are more qualified people than us <laughs> who have written about it. Okay, well, that's everything in my notes. Is there anything that uh, any of you would like to say about this particular crop of Twilight Zone episodes mm. before we twi- uh, sign off? Well, I mean, number 12 looks just like you was definitely like the first Twilight Zone episode that I watched that I was like, yeah, this is great. This isn't just some show that my dad's going to get me really interested in. My dad's very much the dad. He's like, hey, kids, I love this show. Let me show it to you. And then now they're now we're all hooked on it. Uh, my closing thought is more colonizers should get eaten by lions. Oh, yeah. Zombo did such a good job acting. I was like, Kitty! I'm so <laughs> proud of him. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you. And, well, tune in next time.